I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Got an exciting one for you today. I am with Mimi Lamb. Uh, Mimi is the CEO and co-founder of Superit, uh, an award-winning cannabis retailer, lifestyle brand. I hope I said that correctly, Mimi. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. Superette. Superette. Okay. Wrong syllable. Superette. Perfect. And uh, really interesting background because uh, Mimi comes from my world uh, in investment banking prior to... Uh, to venturing out and, and, and being an entrepreneur. So very interested in that kind of background. So so Mimi, thanks very much for uh, for joining me. And, and as before uh, I, I forget, you know, wanted to also mention that you're a founding member of the Ontario Policy Cannabis Council and uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce National Cannabis uh, Working Group. So you, you may know a thing or two about cannabis. I, I, I'm starting to pick up on a trend here. Just one or two things, maybe. Just one or two. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, thanks. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me. Really excited to have this chat. So Mimi, you know, you've listened to a few of my podcasts and I, and I always start uh, way back, you know, I'd love to hear kind of the origination story. You know, what did that childhood look like that landed up getting someone into, you know, investment banking and then having the chutzpah, as my mother would say, to leave and, uh, and start selling on your own. So, you know, we'd love to hear a little more. Yeah, I mean, we can go all the way back, but I, I feel like I've lived many different lifetimes. You don't look old enough to live many different lives. <laughs> I'm an old soul, as they say. Oh, I like to okay. see things up in my head. But no, I, I grew up in, a, you know, in quite a conservative childhood. Didn't really know what I wanted to do growing up, to be honest. Um, I love animals. So I actually, growing up, thought I would be a veterinarian. But then high school came around. I started watching, watching a lot of reality TV. And there was a moment in my life where I thought I would be an interior designer because I watched a lot of trading spaces on TLC. And then I also fell in love with Judge Judy. And so I thought I was going to be some hotshot criminal lawyer. And so when I was leaving high school and looking for, you know, what I was going to take in university, I was still very much in that Judge Judy era. And so I just wanted to have, uh, get some random degree as a pre-law, as a precursor to going to law school. So that was like my vision in my head and like what the path I had created for myself. And so, um, you know, I, I was born and raised in Ottawa. I was looking at the schools all around Ontario. And ultimately, I chose a program at Carleton University. One, because I love the campus at Carleton. Two, they gave me the best scholarship. And three, I was really sold on this international business program because I didn't really see it as a university degree, but more as an excuse to travel. It was a really unique program where you got to learn your business classes, but you also had a mandatory third year exchange for the full year, two semesters, which I found was really re unique. Um, most other universities only had one uh, semester of, you know, exchange. And so I just entered in with the intention of travel with the future intention of going into law school. So that's what I did. And my years in university were extremely transformative. Um, I ended up going on exchange in Shanghai and spent the entire year traveling around Southeast Asia, came back. And, you know, between years two and four, I started holding in on my concentration of finance. 
And so I started really dedicating my courses to finance classes. I joined this club at school called the Sprott Student Investment Fund, which essentially was, um, you know, a taste of equity research. We were playing around with a million dollars of pension assets from Carleton. We we're making recommendations on industries and sectors and, and companies take positions in. And that was my first real glimpse of, you know, the economy, you know, how companies work, how industries work. And I just fell in love. And so really quickly, I shifted my focus from wanting to go to law school at the end of the day to wanting to do capital markets. I thought there was something really fascinating about understanding how this world works and how one little thing, one macroeconomic change could influence so many things in so many different sectors. And then fundamentally, how industry trends could really shape and form the decisions that a company makes. And I thought all of that was just one big puzzle. And I love stories. I, In my head, I'm thinking about the movements and the development of different industries, how companies grow up. It was all like a story to me. And I thought it was fascinating. And so by fourth year, in my head, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get myself on the Bay Street and get into investment banking. I'm going to be you know, a banker for life. That was my career path. And I was dead set on that. So you mentioned that you didn't really know what you wanted to do originally. You know, I find that a lot of young people are told that you have to kind of have this vision of where you're headed from day one. And I think that's actually a mistake because there's no way you're the same person in high school as you are in first year, as you are in fourth year, as you are, you know, you're always kind of moving and changing and getting more experience. How important do you think having that kind of openness is for, for well, for, first was for you, but uh, also for, for young people, because I, I feel like they're pigeonholing themselves far too uh, soon. And, and I, I almost fell victim to that. For sure. I think it's really important to keep an open mind. Um, as you said, and, and put so eloquently, we, we don't really know what we want to do growing up and, and we don't have a crystal ball. It's not like, you know, 30 years from now, this is my perfect job that, you know, resonates with me and my skill set and my passions. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of people are really stuck in that fallacy of, you know, you know, either living their parents' dreams or some preconceived in a story that they've created and told themselves. And I think that limits any one of us from reaching our true potential or actually living a life where we are pursuing our passions is you get a lot of people who might be in industries or in companies doing jobs that they don't enjoy. And I always think about, I'd rather spend every day doing the things that I love than regretting wasting that time because I had a paycheck or because I did something that someone else told me to do. What are some of the ways that you can audit themselves in this kind of desire to pursue your passion? Because I think it's very difficult when you're in something to, to always know whether that you actually are because it could, it could feel right. It could feel like you're passionate about it. But, you know, maybe you're just trying to tell you, as you said, tell yourself a story that this is, you know, this has always been my goal. So I, I of course, I'm passionate about this. Are there ways that you've kind of, you know, taken a step back and, and audited whether you really are uh, pursuing that passion? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important. I think being open-mindedness of understanding what you actually want to do is so critical. And most of the time, it's stepping away from the day to day to really understand that. Like if you at the end of, you know, the day or end of the week or end of the month to stop what you're doing and think about like, do I care about what I'm doing? Do I love what I doing? what I'm doing? Do I love the people that I'm working with? 
do I see myself doing this for the next X years or in the next X amount of time? I think, you know, pulling yourself out of that day to day is so important because it's so easy to just get stuck into the ins and outs of what you have to do. It's like, oh, I have to do this project and I have to do this task and just step away from, uh, from that for a second and just say, do I like this? I always ask myself, if I had unlimited money, would I be doing what I'm doing? Yes. Yes. You know, that, that, that's a good test for me. For sure. And I think uh, I have a lot of friends who turn their hobbies into their professions and they end up regretting that as well because, you know, there's a fine balance between how you want to pursue the things that you want to do. And I think everyone's also really different. Some people love living their job. Some people like having the separation. I think everyone is in a very unique situation and think it's also important not to compare yourself. And because something that might work for for your friends or your colleagues might not actually work for you either. Yeah, a hundred percent. You just going back a little bit. You mentioned that what was appealing about this Carlton program was this idea of exchange and kind of traveling the world. How, how important is travel to a finding yourself, b becoming a better entrepreneur or just better human being? You know, what what are some of the lessons that you learned about you know getting out of your comfort zone? And you know, I'm sure. Shanghai was a complete cultural, uh, you know, change compared to to Ottawa. For sure. I mean, for me, it was crucial. I am not the same person today as I was prior to leaving for Shanghai. Prior to that, I didn't really travel, didn't even really go on family vacations. So I was very sheltered growing up in a suburb in, in Ottawa. And so going on exchange was a huge, huge difference maker in my life. And it was putting myself in, in uncomfortable positions, learning to trust myself and learning how to make decisions, learning about different cultures and how different things, how differently things can be done in different ways of living, foods, the people that you meet along the way. I think it's so important because I think it goes back to that open mindedness. I always believe in, you know, leaving that door open to accepting new ideas and accepting new ways uh, of doing things really helps you and helps inspire you to do the things that you do differently or might look at uh, shape your perspective uh, of the world and the things that you you kind of do yeah before before we jump into this transition from you know traditional base street investment banking to what you're doing now i have to ask you because it's been stuck in my head why judge judy what was it about judge judy the self-confidence was something that that uh, was appealing. The fact that she's a female in a power of uh, like a powerful position, I think that was really attractive. And I thought I just thought there was a dynamics in the courtroom that I found really interesting in that fast-paced nature of kind of the the dialogue. So I thought all of it was really interesting to me. But, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm, I am really grateful for the fact that I didn't go into that profession because I think I found what, uh, what resonates with me. Yeah, law, law is a tough one. You know, I, I don't want to say anything negative about it. You know, I have a lot of uh, great friends that are lawyers, but yeah, that wouldn't be for me. Definitely wouldn't be for me. <laughs> for sure. You know, you, you, you said you grew up very conservatively. You know, what did your parents think about this kind of you know, journey that you've been on and, you know, the world traveling and going into, you know, investment banking and, uh, you know, shifting again to go into cannabis. What did they instill in you, I guess, originally that allowed you to have the comfort to do it? Yeah, I would say that I am quite different from the rest of my family. 
And the person I am today was in some ways what I wanted to be, which was opposite of who my parents were. And so I think the the thing the thought process in my head was how can I be different from how I grew up? Because that's not how I want to live my life. And it was just building that self-confidence. And so over uh, the course of university, one of the biggest things that was really important to me, and I think I mentioned this, was having a scholarship. Because between the scholarship and getting all sorts of jobs along the way, teaching assistants, summer jobs, research assistants, all that allowed me to be financially dependent. So by the time I came back from China, I moved out of my parents' place. I was not, you know, financially dependent on them. I felt like I had the freedom to do whatever I want, pursue any career I want, move countries, move different places, travel, whatever it is in my life that I wanted to do. I felt that I had the freedom to do so. Do you think that you were born with that kind of contrarian mindset or was it something that happened along your your, your path that, you know, led you to believe that you wanted to be different? It's, it's, the, it's the nature versus nurture question I always get to. It's always nature versus nurture. I think I'm I'm innately competitive and I'm quite stubborn and I like to prove people wrong. And so whenever someone's like, you can't do this, I'll be like, oh, just you wait, I'll do this. And I also think that there's an element of just wanting that freedom. I think I've always been a very curious mind. So I like to jump from thing to thing and I don't kind of let my fear get in the way kind of compounded from probably like 10 years of teenage angst, which allowed me to express myself the way I needed to at that time in my life. I mean, I, I heard a lot of nature there. It sounds like you were just <laughs> this individual from, from day one. You know, you, you, you mentioned this idea of proving people wrong. I've been told so many times in my life that, you know, driving energy from that desire to prove people wrong or the chip on the shoulder is you know not is not the right place to find you know your your spark. I completely disagree. I think that that desire to prove people wrong and having that chip on my shoulder, like I don't want it going anywhere. What's your opinion on that? I think it's how you frame it. I think you can channel any sort of energy in a healthy way or unhealthy way. I think you phrase it differently from having a chip on your shoulder to setting a goal for yourself. You know, that's another way of looking at it. Because in a lot of ways, that's the same thing. It's just someone else might have motivated you to think a certain way or to achieve certain things. But but you but you clearly said, aha, I told you so, right? Like, <laughs> and, and I I resonate with that energy. Like that's yeah. that's so me. Like that's me. You know, yeah, for I, you sure. Know, I was I was a I was an overweight, bullied kid, and like there's still that component of me that I don't want to lose because I think it's a very very powerful force. And I've said this numerous times that I really believe that the motivation to not lose is stronger, much stronger than the motivation to win. Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, I even think about like having graduated from Carleton, that's not your classic school that, you know, lands yourself a Bay Street job. But I didn't let that, you know, stop me. I just kept trying because everyone was like, you know, you you graduated from Carleton, you're never going to get a banking job. And I was like, just you wait, I'll get it. I'll get one. So so, so you're in this, you're in a, a great Bay Street job with a great firm. And you say, oh, fuck it. I'm changing. I'm moving to cannabis. What, <laughs> like, talk me through that. Like, that's an interesting transition. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was the intersection of, of quite a few different things. I mean, I'm so grateful for my banking experience. It was almost two years of my life 
where it was really paramount for me to building my skills and building the discipline that I currently have. And I learned so much from public market strategy, capital raising, all of that, that um, I would, wouldn't take away for the world. But I think for me, it kind of goes back to, you know, what am I passionate about? Um, what resonates with me? And I found myself waking up uh, in the mornings and just being like, do I really care about what I'm doing? Do I really want to be doing this? Because I, I'm someone who gives it my all. Um, I put a lot of passion behind my work. And there was a disconnect for me between wanting to do all these things, but the end outcome for my firm was a commission or the fact that I can help them up to a certain point in a transaction, but I don't see the follow through on that. I don't actually understand how that impacts the company. And so that being that external advisor wasn't really working for me. Also compounded by the fact that, you know, it, it is a stressful work environment. Mentally, it was taking a toll on me. And I also wanted to explore uh, being in a company and being an entrepreneur because prior to getting this Bay Street job, I actually spent about half a year at a seed stage venture, venture fund here in Ottawa as a junior only analyst on the team. And day to day, I was working with entrepreneurs in the tech space. And, you know, they were always so passionate about you know, finding solutions to challenges and problems. They're looking at the world through a lens of opportunity. And that was something that I felt was missing uh, when I was in banking. And so between the desires of wanting to take a more entrepreneurial or operational approach, also by the fact that Canada was about to legalize cannabis, you know, those two big factors coming together kind of drove me to the disinstitute to, to jump away from banking. Because cannabis is also something that I've, that's been a really important part of my life for, for quite a few years. I mean, in university, I, you know, similar to a lot of people, I was passing around joints, smoking socially, but it was during my time in banking that I reintroduced cannabis into my life because I was so stressed out. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't function with a healthy state of mind and cannabis really helped me along the way. So you leave banking. Talk to me about those first few months. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I left an investment, uh, sorry, a venture capital job to start what I do now. And I know that it wasn't just, you know, winning, winning, winning from day one. It was, uh, it was a lot of pain and struggle and, and oh shit, did I make the right decision? But I mean, maybe your journey was different. I'd love to hear kind of what those beginning, uh, you know, stages look like. And on the banking side or when no, I no, I'm, I'm starting, starting uh, six parrot. So I actually was at another company before starting Superette. So I joined a company called Tokyo Smoke in early 2017. And the funny story behind that was I was still in my banking job, but I went to uh, a, quite a few 420 parties in 2017 and Tokyo Smoke was one of them. It was during that time that I met the, the founders and some of the original team members. And I was like, I like what you guys are doing. This is cool. And then ultimately kind of chased them down and said, this is going to be a big industry. You're going to be a big company. You need someone who understands business. So you should hire me. And so that was like my introduction into cannabis. And so it wasn't until summer of 2018 that I left that to start Superette. You know, Superette is, it's kind of crazy thinking back to our origin story and how we started all the way to now because so many things have changed. Um, so I started Superette with, you know, at that time, a really good friend named Drummond Monroe. Um, so we are the co-founders of this company. We met at Tokyo Smoke. And we looked at the Canadian cannabis space and said, 
There's a big opportunity in retail. There's an element of economic security and margin security because, you know, we at that time we were looking at all these licensed producers getting licensed and you knew at some point there was going to be an oversupply and a supply demand imbalance. So I didn't want to be subject to the margin compression there. But then from a brand standpoint, because of the marketing regulations, retail is, is such a beautiful spot to be in because you can really surround the customer within the spaces uh, within the walls of your spaces. And we thought, you know, retail can truly be a billboard for a brand. And then fundamentally, from a retail experience standpoint, we've seen that the progress and development of traditional retail over the last three, four decades, but dispensaries themselves seem to be stuck in their ways. Every single dispensary seemed to be a rinse and repeat of the last one. And there was no real thoughtfulness or true retail fundamentals in any of these experiences. And so we were like, why don't we just re reinvent uh, what it's like to buy weed? How do we make it fun? How do we normalize it? And so with that in mind, we started Superette. And again, at that time, um, the regulatory framework was quite different. It was going to be a fully private model. And basically two months after we had started the company, the government scrapped that and said it was lottery and limited license, yada, yada, yada. But it was a lot of learning along the way, exploration from who we are for, as a brand and then also as a company. Because as much as I've interacted with companies and helped build companies in my past, I'd never actually started one. And so everything from your, like your legal and corporate setup, you know, those were, those were all learning for me. And it was really, really fun to, to get that off the ground. You know, you mentioned something right at the beginning, which I wrote down and it's something that really resonated with me. And I'm hoping you agree with me. You know, I, I find as though brands today, uh, you know, build what they think they should build, but they never, a asked the question of who are we, but going back to the first thing you said is you said, I love stories and I couldn't agree more. I love stories as well. And I think that the storytelling behind the building of a brand is, is, is lost. I think the dispensary space is a, a great example of it. You know, you say wash, rinse and repeat. I completely agree. I mean, I went on your website earlier. I've never seen anything like it. It was very unique. And clearly that comes from someone who loves storytelling. Because the art of storytelling, in, in my opinion, has been lost. I mean, you know, I think about my children all the time and how all the nursery rhymes are from 50 years ago. Like, why? Why aren't there new ones? Like, why aren't there new, compelling kids' stories? And, I, and, and I'm not sure why we're losing that art of storytelling. But, you know, what's your opinion on, on A, the importance of storytelling, why we're losing it, and how important it is to the building of a company and a brand? Wow, like storytelling to me is so fundamental because if you can't tell the story to yourself as to why you exist, how is the customer ever going to resonate with what you're building? Like at, at its core, storytelling is like the most important thing, I think, internally, externally to make sure that everyone is on the same page as to what you're doing, what you're putting onto this world. And, you know, why we're losing it if I had to take a guess, I think technology has to do a lot to do with it. I even think about like movies and TVs, and it seems like the art of good dialogue and good character development is, you know, few and far between. And I think a lot of that has to do with technology and, and all of us as, you know, human race being distracted with all these new toys. Potentially is that. I think that's a really interesting kind of sociological question. Uh, now I'd love to explore. 
But in terms of storytelling of a brand and how that impacts kind of company growth, I also think that's really important, especially when there are so many other companies out there and so many other brands out there. And in a world where I think consumers are being more discerning, I think it's really important for consumers to understand what your brand values are and what you stand for, because there is now so much selection and choice out there. And so really kind of speaking to them on a deeper level is critical. Where is this headed? I mean, I live I live in Toronto and honestly, within a three kilometer radius, there's probably 20 cannabis stores. Like I can't even believe like it's, it's, it's gone to a point where it's actually insane and annoying, to be honest with you. Where is this going to shake out? Because like there's going to be carnage. I, I cannot believe there's not going to be carnage. You know, who's going to win and why? Yeah, for sure. And that, that narrative is going to shift over time. I think the the saturation that you see today is something that, you know, is a narrative that has been in the space for over a year now. When as soon as Ontario opened up the licensing process, you know, if you kind of look back at the commentary over a few years, people are always going to be like, you know, we're going to reach over a thousand stores soon and it's going to be too, uh, it's going to mature soon. It's going to be too much saturation. And we're talking about talking about it, but it's not until over the last few months where everyone's seeing it physically with their eyes every single day, the big impact for it. And so to some degree, you're, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, are you actually surprised? We kind of saw this coming. Um, and then, you know, along those same lines, I think about what the story is probably going to be 12 months from today, which is, a lot of these stores are closing down. I think that's also kind of a natural ebb and flow of the market. And the reality is we're still so early in on into this legal industry that it there is going to be that, you know, growth and, you know, contraction of of things like retail stores. And that's just normal, to be honest. And I think it's going to be a few years until we get to a point where, you know, there's some stability where private market actually has determined who survives and, and who doesn't. And, you know, comes back down to your brand value proposition. The retailers that are going to survive are the ones that customers want to go into. So whether that be your product assortment, that could be your experience, that could be a specific niche, it could be convenience, it could be whatever it is. But the companies and the storefronts that don't have a strong value proposition, figure that out now is what I would suggest to them. So, so Mimi, what's, what's the end goal here? For, for, for you, personally. For me, it depends on how you're asking it, maybe. But one day I'm living in the mountains with a whole bunch of dogs and teaching yoga. That's that's one of my end goals. Which which, which mountain region? I, I mean, I, I do love the West Coast, so BC. I also really love Switzerland. So I can see myself there as well. But no, I right now my my head is is purely focused on building Superette. Like I've I've never been so happy in my life. It's so challenging and it's so frustrating, but it's so rewarding. I get to wake up every single day doing cool things with cool people um, and with a team that I love, pushing the boundaries of what will be a global industry. Like who else can really say that? Like it's incredible. I agree. You know, before I let you go, I had I had one other question. I was on your LinkedIn and you have had 139% employee growth in the last two years. What have you learned about managing teams? Because that's been, you know, a unique, you know, skill set that I've had to develop. I guess I'm, uh, you know, I'm not unwillingly, but I, I didn't want to. I really don't love HR. It's not my, it's not my cup of tea. But what, what, what are some of those lessons that you've learned as you've scaled a team? You know, because you do, you did mention that you get to work with some amazing people. So yeah, I'm, I'm very, very curious as to, uh, you know, 
A, do you, do you consider everyone amazing? Uh, that's a loaded question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what you learned about, you know, leading and managing and building a, a, a good cohesive team. Yeah, for sure. I, this sounds really cliche, but it, at the end of the day, it comes down to communication and trust. So communication is obviously critical in terms of communicating overall company strategy, all the way to listening to what, you know, that team member's needs are, which is really different. And so that dialogue and that communication is so important to inspire uh, a team member and also to make sure that everyone's kind of moving at the same pace and in the right direction. And then also trust. I think that some people talk to me and like assume that somehow everything that Super Ed does was done by me, which is like not possible at all. You know, a lot of it, I have to give credit to the rest of the team that is the actual people doing this, the, the butt tenders at the, at the store, talking and interacting with every customer, our creative market team, getting our message to the world, our finance and accounting team, making sure that we have the foundation to run a business on. And so there's an element of trust of saying like, you know what you're doing. I'm going to empower you to do it. We can figure out how we're uh, going to achieve something, but you go for it. I'm not a micromanager. Um, I, I can't micromanage. That's not how I want to lead. And so it's making sure that I trust the team members to do what they need to do. And then they also trust me to guide them in the right direction. And so those two pieces are fundamental for any relationship and especially for a team. Totally. It's a great way to end this. So maybe outside of them checking out your website, which I would highly recommend it because it's super cool. You know, one of the, one of the more unique websites I've ever been on. What's the best way that they can follow along on your journey? Yeah, for sure. So definitely check us out on Instagram and Twitter at superat underscore shop. I also have my personal um, profiles on all the platforms that you, if you look a little bit harder, you can definitely find me. But definitely check out everything on Superat. And we also have a mailing list with some fun perks. So I hope to see you on that in our journey and at future events and future things that we do um, as a company, as a brand. Well, thank you very much, Mimi. And uh, until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.